Romans chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 18, and we're going to go as far as chapter 6, verse 14. Paul says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Now, for as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, Grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace." Now, Paul's letter didn't have chapter breaks in it, so it's actually good for us to see how the end of what we call chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6 tie together. That's why I broke it down this way that we move into this next section. We've been studying how one man's sin brought condemnation and death to everyone, but so too can one man's righteousness be given to all who receive him by faith to cause us to pass from death to life. That's what we've been looking at so far. But Paul here is saying that as much as Adam was a type of the one to come, which is Jesus, his passing sin on to us and Jesus' giving us righteousness aren't received in the same way. Adam's sin problem was automatically passed on to all people as evidenced by everyone dying. Jesus's gift of righteousness, even though available to everyone, as we've just read, has to be received as a gift. And so if you hopefully understand what I'm saying, Adam, when Adam sinned, his sin was automatically passed on to everyone. We're born in sin. We're, 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 that's the way we are. And, but as much as Adam's one act of disobedience caused condemnation and judgment to everyone. It was a type or a picture of the fact that there's one person who can now affect everyone else. Just like Adam affected everyone, there's a person coming, which has already come, Jesus, who his life and his obedience can affect everyone. But there's a difference. Adam was automatically passed on to us. We didn't have a choice. But Jesus' righteousness has to be received. Go with me to Romans chapter 5 again and look at verses 15 through 17, the verses just prior to where we began tonight. But the free gift, Romans 5 verse 15, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if by one, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Now, do you notice how Paul keeps bringing out that the righteousness to be passed on to us because of one man, Jesus, is a gift? It's a free gift, free gift, free gift, but it has to be received. All right. So let's go back and take a look at how the scripture has been telling this, telling us this in other areas as well. Go back to John chapter one and look at verses 10 through 13. 
We've just read in Romans chapter 5 that Adam's sin passed on to all. And we've also read that Jesus' righteousness is available to all. But just like Adam's was passed on and you just received it by, with no choice, Jesus' righteousness will only be received as a gift. Romans, I'm sorry, John chapter 1, look at verses 10 through 17. I'm sorry, 10 through 13. Romans chapter 1, verses 10 through 13. It says, He, Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people, the Jews, did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. He came to all those, he came to his own and they didn't receive him, but all those who did what? Received him. Just like we just read in Romans 5, but those who receive this free gift of righteousness, free gift, free gift. Jesus' righteousness is for everyone. It's offered. You have to receive it. Go to John chapter 3. Look at verses 16 through 18. Listen to what Jesus is telling Nicodemus and all of us. He says in John 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Don't miss what he says here. He says not only that Jesus came to die for the sins of the whole world, he, God loves the whole world, and Jesus died for everyone. Everyone who believes in him is not condemned and has been given eternal life, but everyone who doesn't believe in Jesus is condemned when? Already. You ever notice how people say, one day I'm going to stand before God and he's going to make the decision then? The Bible says if you die without receiving Jesus, I can tell you how the judgment's going to go. I can tell you how your court case is going to be decided. You're condemned already because remember, we're born dead in our trespasses and sin. And remember, Adam's sin passed on to us and brought what? Death condemnation. We've just read that. That's, how, that's the condition we're in. If you stay in that condition, when you stand before God, the judgment's already been decided. And the sad thing is what people don't realize is not only has the judgment already been decided, but also you've added a worse sin by not receiving the free gift that God provided for you for your sins. And what, by the way, what did God do in order to pay for your free gift? He gave his son, You're his only son. You're going you're gonna to actually snub that? That's why in the book of Revelation, chapter 20, it talks about how at the time when all at the end of the tribulation period, at the end of the millennial kingdom, all the wicked dead are going to be brought before the great white throne. And that's going to be a time of judgment so much so that the Bible says earth and sky tried to get out of God's presence. They didn't want to be anywhere near him at that time. And everyone was judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. And then the book of life was open and everyone's name who wasn't in, found in the book of life. Of course, everybody at that judgment, their name's not in the book of life. And so they've added that sin to all their other sins and they're going to be judged accordingly. Folks, righteousness is available to everyone through one man. Oh, and by the way, only that one man. Because you notice how the Bible says for those who believed in his name, that's important. What does it mean to believe in the name of Jesus? What it means is you, you believe in who he is, who God has said he is. And God has said that he is the only way that you can be made right with him. There is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved except Jesus. When you say, I believe in Jesus, but I think there are other ways as well, you don't believe in the name of Jesus Christ. The name of Jesus is that he is God himself, God's, not only God's son, but God himself, and he is the only way you can be made right with God. That is believing in the name of Jesus. And unfortunately, there's a lot of people out there who claim to be Christians who think, and I've heard them say this to me, well, I believe in Jesus, Jim. I think that's the way that I'm getting right before God. But I think there are many ways, and other people can get to God their way. They don't believe in Jesus, and they're not saved. You have to believe in his name. 
And his name is whom God says he is, and that is that he's the only way. And it has to be received by faith. Go to John chapter 6. Jesus is about to say quite a bit along this topic in John 6, verses 25 through all the way through 51. In John chapter 6, starting in verse 25, He's just done the feeding of the 5,000, and he goes to the other side of the lake. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Oh, what a surprise. Jesus answered them. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, well, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, well, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Oh, by the way, Jesus, in case you're curious and you want a few suggestions on one you could do for us. Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it wasn't Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. By the way, if that isn't a verse that settles that if you're truly saved and sealed by the Spirit of God, you won't lose your salvation. It's impossible. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, don't grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Now everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the father, except he is from God, and he has, he has seen the father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has, did you catch that? Has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that came down from, that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. They were chasing Jesus because he had just filled their bellies and they liked what he could do for them and what they wanted done. They find him and they say, what are you doing here? He goes, I know why you're looking for me. You're not looking for me because you saw the signs and you want to find out if I'm really who I say that I am. You're just here because you want your belly filled. And by the way, there's a lot of people that chase God, if you will, or believe in God until he stops taking care of their bank account or their health or whatever. They look to him as someone that could take care of things for them but he pretty much has to work for them or they're not happy. And then he goes into this whole teaching about the fact that, of course, they then said, well, do, if you want to do a sign so we can believe in you, why don't you just give us some more bread like Moses did, the people in the wilderness. And he said, by the way, that was pointing to me. I'm the true bread that comes down from heaven. And anyone that eats of this bread will live forever. And I've said this before, and I hope you hear me. If you have been given eternal life, can you lose that? Right. It's not eternal life if you could lose it. Right. So if you've passed from death to life, if you've been sealed by the spirit of God, if he's confirmed that you are his folks, you're his. Let's stop worrying about that. Let's move into what is next that comes with it, which we'll start getting into tonight. But again, Adam's one man's action, sin, disobedience brought death to everyone. Jesus' righteousness, one man's action, obedience, brought life 
to everyone, but there's a difference. The difference is Adam's sin affected everyone and no one had a choice. The difference on this one, though, is the one man's obedience has to be received by faith. You have to believe that he is the only way you can be made right before God. As much as hopefully you do understand, as much as some people try to fight it, Adam's sin has been passed on to you. You can also believe that Jesus' righteousness can be given to you as well. But you have to receive it. Now it's obvious, like I said here in my notes, that as much as Jesus' free gift is for all men, only those who believe and receive this gift of righteousness are saved. Let me illustrate this from two passages of Scripture. Go to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2 and look at verse 2. First John chapter two, verse two, he, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Pretty clear, isn't it? He's not only he's not the propitiation just for our sins. He's the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. All right. But go now with me to Matthew chapter seven and look at what Jesus says in Matthew seven, verses 13 and 14. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So if Jesus died for the whole world, how come Jesus said most of the whole world's going to go to destruction and to hell? And those who go to heaven, even though Jesus died for the whole world, those who go to heaven, the numbers are few. How come? I'm sorry? They didn't accept the free gift, but it's a free gift. I mean, come on, folks. It's a free gift. Someone else has already paid the price. Why wouldn't people just receive it? Well, actually, go back with me to John chapter 3. Well, it's not just Satan. Yeah. There you go. Pride. Go ahead. Well, if you don't seek it, you won't find it. But at the same time, I believe the Bible opens everyone's eyes enough that they should seek it. Whether they will or not is another issue. But that's a good point. Because if you don't think you need it, you're not going to look for it. Go to John chapter 3. Go, let's look at the very next verses after where we just read. John chapter 3, we already read verses three, uh, thir- uh, 16 through 18. Look at verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. In order for you and I to receive the free gift of righteousness, we have to acknowledge what? We're a sinner. sinner. We don't have righteousness. I need righteousness. That's why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. The blessed are those who realize they're spiritually bankrupt. Blessed are those who mourn or grieve because they're spiritually bankrupt. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. This is just a little commercial. I don't want to take you from your churches these next two weekends, but I'm actually going to be preaching on Sundays in this area the next two Sundays. This coming Sunday, I'm going to be preaching the three services in the morning at First Baptist Melbourne. And then the Sunday after that, I'm going to be preaching at First Baptist Merritt Island. And there are two separate messages. I'm going to be preaching both of those times if you're interested in coming. But when I preach at First Baptist Merritt Island, I'm going to be helping or continuing. That's my home church. We've been going through a series in the book of Galatians, and I'm going to be covering the verses in chapter 5 of Galatians that talk about the offense of the cross. We're going to take a look at what what is the offense of the cross. And just real quickly, the offense of the cross is, what the cross says is, if you want any credit in salvation, you can't have it. And that offends a lot of people. They think they're good enough. They think they should be able to earn it. And don't all the other religions teach that there's things you have to do in order to be saved, in order to make nirvana or whatever? Purgatory, all these different things. They teach that you have to do something. The cross is offensive to our flesh. 
because we want credit. So Adam's one act of disobedience affected everyone. Jesus' one act of, of obedience is available to everyone, but they're not exactly the same. You don't just automatically get it. It must be received by faith. Now, Paul then, go back to Romans 5 and look at verse 20. Paul then goes on in Romans 5.20 to say that God's law was added later to help us see this sin problem that we all have because everyone's dying wasn't proof enough that there was sin. Romans chapter 5, look at verses, uh, verse 20. It says, now the law came in to increase the trespass. Then he says, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Now, let, let me just say this to you. If you were to ask most people, does God want lost people to sin more or sin less? Most everybody would say, oh, he wants them to sin less. No, it's not what the Bible teaches. Actually, the law was added so that the trespass sin would what? Increase. Why would God want sin to increase? So what? So you turn to him. Exactly. So you would realize, look, if you have cancer, but if you ignore it, your doctor wants you to realize it's there. He wants you to see it. And whatever he's got to do to get you to see it, he wants you to see it so you'll acknowledge it and deal with it. And the law was added for lots of reasons. We're not going to get into the depth of it tonight because we're going to cover it more in chapter 7. But the law was added so that the trespass would increase. One, it actually fuels sin when the law says thou shalt not. Now everything in us wants to. We'll deal with that more in chapter 7. But also the law reveals sin when we don't realize we have it or we don't think we have it. Years ago when I was in seminary in New Orleans, I uh, worked part-time, uh, me and a buddy and some other couple of buddies. We had our own little uh, repair company. We would repaint houses or re-roof your house or we'd do remodeling and things just to make some extra money while I was in seminary. And my buddy, his name was James. Uh, he also had another side job where he worked at night at a funeral home. Back in that time, I don't know if it still is that way in, 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 in Louisiana, but especially in New Orleans, they had a law that if there was a dead body in the funeral home, a live human had to be there with the dead body at all times. It was against the law to leave a body by itself in a building, and that person had to be awake. There's actually old songs about sitting up with the dead, all right? And, that's, and, and, and so James, it's a, it, they would hire seminary students because seminary students love the job. You didn't have to do anything, but just be there all night awake, and you got paid for it. And so a lot of seminary students would take those jobs because you could study, and you get paid to study. So I, um, he, he came to pick me up one day after sitting up with the dead, and uh, as he picked me up in his pickup truck, he said, uh, he said uh, do me a favor. He said, help me watch my speed. I got a ticket yesterday for speeding, and they took my license and gave me this pink slip. Let me explain. In New Orleans at that time, again, I don't know how it works now. It's been a lot of years. Uh, if you got a speeding ticket, they would take your driver's license from you and give you a ticket, but give you a pink piece of paper that you had to keep on you, and you wouldn't get your driver's license back till you went to court and took care of your speeding ticket. But if you got pulled over with the pink slip, having already been ticketed for speeding, and you got pulled over again and you got a pink slip, you're in trouble. So he said, all I got is this pink slip. Let's be real careful. Watch my speed. So we're going down the road toward the house we're going to go paint. And there's a police officer up ahead clocking everybody. He said, watch my speedometer. So I'm watching. He's going, with, I'm going 35, right? I go, yep, you're going 35. So we pass the officer and he lights us up. Officer pulls us over. He comes up to the window. My friend James says, officer, I was going 35. I have a witness. He's been watching. He even saw we were going 35. I said, sir, he was going 35. He said, well, that's good. I had you at 33. This is a school zone. We'll add two more miles an hour to it if you want us to. We thought we were okay. We were convinced that we were okay. The law showed us we weren't. Do you understand? The law was added so that trespass would increase. We'll deal with that more of how the law fuels sin when we get together in, in the section in chapter 7. Uh, I, had, I had to drive the truck the rest of the day. 
But interestingly enough, even though way back in Genesis 3, God said that death would be the consequence of Adam's sin, the world back then and now all the way through tries to convince itself that they're good people. But on top of that, there was also a group of people that not only thought they were good people, they thought they were the best people and they were religious leaders and they were leading a whole lot of people called the Jews astray, the Pharisees. And let me just tell you, Jesus is loving and kind. He didn't take it easy on the Pharisees because they were leaders, blind leaders of the and making people even more blind. Go to Matthew 23. Go to Matthew chapter 23 and look at verses 13 through 15. Matthew 23, verses 13 through 15. Listen to what Jesus says to the Pharisees. Matthew 23, verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. How did the Pharisees, who were already children of hell, make their proselytes or their converts to Judaism and their false religion, how, how did they become twice child of hell? Well, no, that's close, but that's not it. They were already children of hell. Remember, we're born that way. But they became twice as much because now they even twice as much thought they were okay because not only did they in themselves think they were okay because they were deep in the law, but the religious leader said I was okay. If the preacher said I was okay, and I think I'm okay, even though I'm not okay, but I think I'm okay, and then the preacher says I'm okay, I'm twice as far away from coming to that realization of my problem than I was before. Look at what he says in chapter 23, verses 25 through 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. God isn't looking at our actions, is he? He's not looking at the outside. He's looking at our hearts. And deep down, even those who think they're okay, who are resting in how good they've been, deep down everyone knows you're not good. And you just have to acknowledge that, humble yourself and say, I need righteousness. It's a free gift. But go back to Romans 5. The law was added so that the trespass would increase. And then look at the rest of verse 20. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, Grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, he says, it doesn't matter how much sin increased. God wasn't worried about sin increasing because his grace is so awesome, it can cover any amount of sin. By the way, how many times have Satan whispered in the ear of some people, not only saying, well, you're good enough, but he also whispers to other people and say, you're so bad, God could never forgive you. Isn't that sad? How he'll lie to us on both sides just to keep us from God. And here the Bible says there's no amount of sin that you can do that his grace can't cover. And as sin increased, all it did was increase the glory of God's grace. I mean, if I pay for your meal as a, as a free gift and you had a hamburger and a fries, you're probably going to appreciate it. But if I pay for your meal... And you had 10 people at the table and you're at a nice fancy restaurant at $100 a head. I'm going to get a little more glory, aren't I? Than, than I would have if I'd get, bought you a hamburger and a fry. In the same way, God gets more glory by how much sin he covers. It actually shows his grace, his glory. Go with me to 1 Timothy. 
Go to 1 Timothy chapter 1. I'm going to jump ahead in my notes here because I want to just show you this right now. I think God wants us to look at this right now. 1 Timothy chapter 1, look at verses 12 through 17. Paul says in verse 12, 1 Timothy 1, verse 12, I thank him, Jesus, who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life, to the king of ages, immoral, I'm sorry, not immoral, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Don't miss what Paul said. He said, I was the worst sinner. Well, come on, Paul, you were a Pharisee. Do you remember what Jesus was telling the Pharisees? They were worse sinners, even though they looked to the world like they were super righteous. Paul said, I was the worst. And oh, by the way, if you don't know a lot about Paul's life, he was known as Saul back at this time. He not only thought he was righteous, he was leading other people to be unrighteous just like him and telling them they're righteous because he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And anyone that believed in this Jesus who actually had the nerve to think that they'd be righteous without having to earn it by just receiving it, he would go all over to try to arrest them and have them put to death. If there was anybody that was against Jesus, it was Paul. By the way, I know in the day and age in which we live, we wanna, we just can't wait for the day when these terrorists who grab Christians and kill them or get theirs. I'm gonna ask you to pray that God would give you the grace to pray for them, that they would come to know him. Just like Stephen, while he was being stoned, said, Father, don't hold this against them. They don't know what they're doing. And Jesus was on the cross saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Oh, when you get to the tribulation period, yes, in, in Revelation, I think it's chapter 6, you see the souls under the altar saying, how long until you avenge our blood? The tribulation period is a time of judgment and wrath. But right now, we're still in the age of grace. And those of us who have Christ within us should not be saying, I can't wait until they get theirs. God, I hope you judge those terrorists. No, Paul was a terrorist. And God displayed his glory by saving Paul. And think how much glory God would receive by having some of these terrorists come to Christ. Go back to Romans 5 and look at verse 21 again, though. There's something here. There's a word I want us to start looking at that's going to move us into now living out this righteousness that we've been given. Remember, we already have his righteousness. We already have eternal life. Look closely at the words here in verse 21. So, as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, sin reigned in what? Death. Okay, so sin's glory is what? Death. Sin's glory is death. That's why in the New Testament, Paul says, why do you, why do you even want to think about those kind of things? All those things lead to death. What's the point? And for years, unfortunately, I've had too many people come to me as a pastor and say, Pastor, can I talk to you for a second? I got a question. Is this sin? In other words, if I do this, am I sinning? But what they're really asking is, how close to sin can I get without stepping over the line? Instead of saying, how close to Jesus can I get? We want to see how close to sin we can get. Folks, sin's glory is death. If sin reigned in death, much more will God's grace reign in what, according to this? Righteousness, leading to eternal life. In other words, we who have been given God's grace and his mercy, he wants to display it too. Just like sins, the, the evidence of sin was death and all the damage it does in the meantime. 
God now has given us this righteousness that he wants to display for his glory. He wants righteousness to reign in our bodies. We're going to talk about this more when we come back in two weeks. We're not going to have study next week, but then we'll meet again two weeks from now. But we're going to start really breaking down the beginning of chapter 6. That just as we died to sin, now we can live just like Jesus no longer worries about death. He's now living to God. We, in the same way, can live in that power to God. And the righteousness that is ours can actually reign in our lives. But don't get ahead of yourself. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 1. I want you to understand, hopefully begin to understand something that God giving you righteousness wasn't just so he could just save you. If he would just wanted to save us, we'd say, thank you, Lord, for my salvation and go to heaven. He leaves us here. He leaves us here for a reason. Go to Ephesians chapter one. Look at verses three through 14. It says, blessed be the God and the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, give him glory, praise him. Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. By the way, does anybody here fully understand what that means? I don't either. And I don't think we fully will on this side of heaven. But I want to know more. I want to know more. He's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Now, before we go any further, I don't want anybody getting bogged down. Everybody says, oh, that predestined. Does that mean he's predetermined before the creation of the foundation of the world who'd be saved and who's not? No. Look closely at what it says was predestined. What was predestined was that all that would come to him would come through who? Be adopted as sons through who? Through Jesus. He doesn't determine before the foundation of the world who, but he's predetermined the how. That's why if you go to the story of Gideon, when God has him narrow his big army down and he wants to get the 10,000 down to 300, he says to him, have them go down to the water and drink however they want. But the ones who drink in this manner are the ones I've chosen. That's a picture of salvation, folks. God has already predetermined the manner in which we're supposed to drink, correct? What has been the predetermined, predestined manner in which we drink in order to be saved? Faith in Jesus Christ. You can drink however you want, but only the ones who drink in this manner are the ones who are going to be saved. Those are the chosen. We were predestined to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. That was planned before the foundation of the world. The how we're saved. The who, everybody has a choice. Everybody has a choice. That's why we even read that the Pharisees were hindering some. You know, if it was already predetermined, the Pharisees couldn't hinder it. You understand what I'm saying? Don't let those who try to think they're smarter than anybody else, not use the whole of scripture and help you see Jesus died for the whole world. The whole world's not going to heaven. But at the same time, man does have the ability to say yes or no. And they're both there. And if you're saved, God did it. And I don't know how the two go together, but they're both there. But keep reading. This was to the verse six, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he's blessed us in the beloved. In him, in Jesus, we have, past tense, already have it, redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he's lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ meet, might be to what? To the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, where you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, again, to the praise of his glory. God has saved you, and he wants to display what he's done in your life for his glory, to the praise of his glory. My question is, is your life such one, a one that people would see what you do and how you live, and they'll say, man, look at that, praise God for what they've done in that person, what he's done in that person's life. Now, before you beat yourself up, let me encourage you with something as we move into sanctification. 
you're going to see in just a little bit in the time we have left tonight, sanctification is not only a done deal, it's a process. And just because you're saved and you've got all this righteousness and all that you need is already available to you, don't think that God's plan is that all of a sudden your light's going to click on and all of a sudden you're just going to start living righteously. No, salvation is done, but it's being worked out. And he's not in a hurry. He's not in a hurry, and neither should you be. Unfortunately, some of you might have been raised in some denominations that taught that if you weren't living righteous enough, all you had to do was go to this special service where this one anointed preacher was preaching, and the Holy Spirit's going to be poured out there, and he's just going to lay hands on you, and all of a sudden you walk out of there. I'm a new creation, and, and, and I'm living for the Lord now. I've rededicated my life, and I'm going to live 100% for the Lord. But how long did that last? Yeah. No. It's a process. You're going to see that. It's a process. But let me ask you this question. Has there been growth in your walk with the Lord? Doing good. But don't think for a second, if I try harder, if I do better, I'm going to live more like Jesus. Sometimes it's hard for my wife to be married to a preacher. She was on the way home the other day coming from, she, she did a, a banquet uh, she actually cooked for, I don't know, almost 200 people at a widow's banquet at our church. She had help, but she was in charge of the whole deal and did all the cooking. And as she was coming home from prep work the night before, she texted me and said, I'm going to be a little late. I'm stuck in traffic behind a school bus. And she writes, I'm practicing patience. <laughs> She's married to a preacher. I texted back and said, you can't practice patience. It's a fruit. But she was far away, so I was brave. Figured she'd be calmed down by the time she got home. But I want you to hear that. You can't practice patience. It's a fruit. As you're going to see, we need to learn now how to, we've been given this righteousness, how do we let it reign and, and, and rule in our lives? And we have been unfortunately taught, you need to be more loving. You need to be more kind. You need to, and we try to go do it. That's just like telling people to go save themselves. You can't save yourself. Jesus wants to give it to you as a gift. Colossians 2.6, in the same way in which you receive Jesus as Lord, walk in it. And hopefully we're going to start learning how to do that as we move into chapter 6, 7, and 8. Now, some might say, though, go to chapter 6, verse 1, that since the law came in to increase man's sin, and in doing so, God's grace got more glory... Why not just keep sinning intentionally as believers so God's grace will get more glory? Look at again at chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we, believers, who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And by the way, that's not talking about your water baptism. That's talking about when you were put into Christ and he was put into you when you were saved and the spirit, you were given the spirit and you were put into Christ. We were baptized into Christ Jesus. We were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too, what's the network? Next, next word might walk in newness of life. It's available. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now, let me say this to you. We're going to break the beginning of this down in two weeks when we come back together a little bit more. But Paul said, now some people might say, well, if he gets more glory by covering sin, why can't we just go ahead and sin because it's covered and that gives him more glory? And he says, we don't think that way. For those of us who have truly been born again, your attitude will be, I actually want to live more righteously. I don't want to sin more. You're not going to be perfect at this. I'm not perfect at this. But as we get to chapter 7, you'll see that Paul says that he's got this problem. His flesh is there, but in his inner man, he delights in the law of God. He wants to do the will of God. And if I know you, if you're a child of God and brother and sister of mine, you do deep down want to. You still got your flesh that wants to do the other. But deep down, you really do want to live for the Lord. You know how I can prove it? When you do choose to sin instead of walk in obedience, how do you feel afterwards? It doesn't feel good, does it? 
No, because you're a new creation. Let me say something to you. When people say, as a believer, well, when I sin, I'm only human. No, you're not. When you sin now and when I sin, we're sinning against our nature. It's not our nature to sin anymore. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. The problem is many of us, and Jim Johnson included, and I lived this way for a long time, many of us have never learned how to live out the righteousness that has been given to us. Oh, it's done by faith. It's done daily. And it's a process of learning how to get gooder at it. All right? But... Don't think you're just going to all of a sudden, Pastor, could you just pray for me and think that I'm going to pray for you and then all of a sudden you're going to be all better. It's not how it works. We should be praying for each other all the time that we would daily learn how to walk with Jesus. Now, in the first five chapters of Paul's letter to the Romans, he lays, in laying out the gospel, Paul has dealt deeply and wonderfully with justification. We've already dealt with how... God's word's been proclaimed, the gospel of salvation. He's not ashamed of it. It's to everyone, Jew and Gentile, has always been. The Jews have had more privilege. That's why Jew first and also the Greek. But the Jews have had more privilege, but it's for everyone all along. And then lays out that no one is righteous before God, not even the Jews. Actually, they're more guilty before God because they had more revealed to them. And that this righteousness, this righteousness and faith in Christ is not something new. It's actually the law and the prophets have testified to it all along. It's been there. And you are justified by what? Faith alone in Jesus Christ. That's it. Now he's going to move into, in chapter 6 through 8, he's going to move into sanctification. Your salvation has three parts, folks. The first part is the day you got saved. That's your just, you were justified, declared righteous, stamped by God as righteous. The righteousness of Christ was given to you. You're saved. If you died at that moment, you'd go to heaven. But there's a middle part called sanctification, which we're going to begin to look at tonight to move into where we're going in a couple weeks. Sanctification has two parts, which we're going to get to tonight, the, the, the finished part and the process part. We'll get to in a second. And then one day when we get out of these bodies and we go be with Jesus, there's the third part called glorification. That's what we just read in Ephesians 1. We've been given the spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So let me ask you a question. I think you know the answer. You've been listening to my questions for years. Are you saved? Yes. Are you being saved? Yes. And will you be saved? Yes. yes. But keep that in mind. Because there's days you don't feel saved. There are days you don't look saved doesn't you know how the Bible says we're saved, but we're being saved, and one day God will bring with him salvation? Why is he bringing salvation if I already have it? Well, because salvation has three parts, justification, sanctification, and glorification. Now, we've already been justified. What part are we in right now? So let's not, shouldn't it be good for us to study sanctification? That's what we're going to do, all right? The first part of sanctification has two parts. The word sanctified is two parts. The first one is to be set apart, different from the world, holy, separate. And you ready for this one? It's going to freak some of you out. A saint. I know some of you were taught in whatever church you were raised that in order to be a saint, you had to be dead so many years and you had to have done so many miracles and all this kind of stuff. And then you become a saint of three-legged dogs and different things like that. But, but here's the thing. The Bible clearly states that all who are in Christ are saints. That's hard for some of us to grasp. Do you know why you have a problem with accepting that you're a saint? Because your brain goes, I don't look like a saint. I don't feel like a saint. When was it up to you? Thank God it's not tied to you and me. Now, he wants what's there to be seen by the rest of the world, but God already sees it. And you're a saint. Go with me to uh, Romans chapter 1. Look at verse 7. You might have not really noticed it when we began our study. Romans chapter, chapter 1, verse 7. Romans 1, verse 7. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be what? Saints. 
Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Jump over to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. First Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect, exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. In other words, he said, I want to write to you ones who have been sanctified. That's who he was writing to. The saints who had been scattered because of the persecution in all these areas. He was writing to the saints. You are sanctified. But you're also being sanctified. That's the second part of it. Just like I said, you're saved, but you're being saved. Sanctification also means the process of becoming more and more like Jesus. We've been given his righteousness now. Righteousness. Now we must learn how to let him live it out in and through us. And that's going to be a daily process, and it's going to be slow growth between here and heaven. But there should be growth. That's evidence of salvation. Go to Philippians chapter 2. Go to Philippians chapter 2 and look at verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. I'm so glad he didn't stop at verse 12. For it is God who works in you both to will, that's the desire to do it, and to work for his good pleasure. You have a responsibility, just like everyone who got saved had a responsibility. Jesus died for the whole world, but the whole world's not going to heaven. Who are the only ones that are going to heaven? Those who acted on God's promise, who acted on it, who received it by faith. That's why James says, you say you got faith, there's going to be actions that show it in the same way. For those of us who have been saved and we've been given this salvation, we have to act on it. We need to work out. It's already there. Work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And it means just taking it serious. And later on, if I, were to, I don't have time tonight to show it to you, but I could show you how that same phrase Paul used when he talked to the Corinthians about how they received Titus. And, you, and he had sent Titus to go help them, and they received Titus with fear and trembling. They weren't like, oh, no, Titus is coming. They, were, they took Titus's visit serious. In the same way, we're to take serious the salvation that we've been given. Folks, you've been given an amazing gift. What if I were to give you a Super, super expensive car. I don't even know the name of them. Maserati or Lamborghini, Ferrari, whatever you think is good. What if I gave you that amazing car and you let it just sit in your garage and rot? How many of you ever seen some of those like super, super nice cars who they find at barn finds? And they're thinking, they had that sitting in their garage. Hey, you've been given more than that. You've been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Wow. For eternity. It's been a free gift. Let's, let's start taking it serious. Again, there's going to be parts of this car, if you will, that we won't understand fully more and more in time. But let's take it serious. But it's God who works in you both to desire and to act out what he wants to do. So we have to learn how to say, Lord, give me the desire to forgive this person. Lord, give me the desire to say no to this temptation. Lord, give me the desire to whatever it is that God's telling you is obedience in your life. Go to John chapter 17. You're about to see. I'm just laying a foundation as we start to move into sanctification in the next few weeks. Let me just lay a foundation for you here. Go to John 17, verses 14 through 19. Two more passages, and I'm going to let you go. I know I've bombed you with a bunch tonight, but I, I think the Spirit of God's helping it sink in. 
John 17, verses 14 through 19. Jesus is praying right before he goes to the cross, and he says, Father, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Remember, we're separate. We're the saints. I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I thought we were already sanctified. Yes, you are. But you're being sanctified. And how does he sanctify us? You just read it right there in the word. His word is truth. Sanctify them in the truth. His word is truth. You want to move into these precious promises? You got to know what they are. That's why you got to watch out for preachers who will say and make all these great claims. If you have enough faith and if you and they go beyond what the scripture says, they take a portion of scripture and then they add human reasoning and man's wisdom and what fuels man's flesh. And you are an overcomer and you can no let the whole of scripture speak. But you want to be set apart for God. You want to be living out this power. You got to know his promises. You got to know his words. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. Oh, and don't miss what he just said. I don't have time to unpack it tonight. As you sent me into the world, verse 18, so I have sent them in the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Do you know that Bible says that Jesus ever lives to intercede for us. He's still acting on it on our behalf. I love that. There's more to that we have time for. One last passage. Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. First Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Doesn't that sound like something pretty cool and something you want? Well, he who calls you is faithful. He'll surely do it. Does that mean it's just going to happen? All you have to do is just sit back and it's going to happen? No, you got to act on it. You've got to work out your salvation daily with fear and trembling. Take it serious. But in the same way in which you received him, Lord, you made a promise, and I believe your promise. And you said it had nothing to do with me and everything to do with you, and I receive it by faith. And you were saved. Now, you have more promises that are available to you now that you're his child. And you need to know what they are. And you need to, on a daily basis, say, Lord, you made a promise. You said that you would do this. You said that you would empower me. I believe that you will. Now be careful. Is God in a hurry? No, if he was, a lot of us would be in a lot of trouble, wouldn't we? I had a man come to me at the end of study last night and he said this, and we'll close with this. And I told him, I said, Jack, I'm going to steal this. He said, I look at my sanctification like an artichoke. He said, an artichoke has all these different parts. He said, and I would say, Lord, I really want you to work on my weight. And God says, actually, let's leave that one there for now. I want to work on your lust. Lord, I really want to work on my weight now. Lord says, no, no, no. Now I want to work on your pride. Do you understand what I'm saying? If he is the Lord, he gets to determine what we work on first. There's nothing wrong with asking him about a certain area, but he might say, I'm worried about that one as much right now as I'm worried about this one. Well, Lord, I know that's there, but I just didn't want to talk about that one. Let him sanctify you. Oh, he who calls you is faithful. He will do it. And if you let him do it, when you get to heaven, you will receive more reward for what you allowed him to do in you and through you in the sanctification process. If you say, I'm going to heaven, that's good enough for me, 
You're going to heaven. He'll lose none that he's, he'll cast out none that the Father's given him. But you'll suffer loss for eternity. I don't want that for you. I don't want that for me. So let's have some fun learning about this sanctification process. We'll talk about it together in two weeks. Hopefully you'll study on it some more between now and then. I love you. We'll see you then.